0: This episode of CBO Speaks is brought to you by Kaufman Hall. Learn about their strategic and financial consulting services and Axiom software for budgeting and planning by visiting Kaufmanhall.com forward slash higher education. Welcome to CBO Speaks, the official podcast of the National Association of College and University Business Officers. I'm President and CEO Susan Wheeler Johnston, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in today. Our mission for this podcast is to ask chief business officers to reflect on their careers, share personal examples of the ways they have navigated challenging situations, and offer some lessons that they've learned from their experience as a CBO. You can find resources for today's episode, as well as a wide variety of research and tools at nakubo.org. Thank you for joining us today. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to CBO Speaks. Thanks so much for listening. My name is Megan Strand, your host, and it is my great pleasure to be joined today by Harold Hewitt, Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer at Chapman University. Welcome, Harold. Thank you. Well, to get us started today, Harold, I was hoping that you could tell our listeners a little bit about how you came to higher education as a profession.
1: Uh, I'd be really pleased and honored to have the chance to do that. Now, I've listened to a few of these podcasts, and I've heard some of the other stories. Oh, great. And so it gives me a little context for offering how I came to this role. Um, I started off my interest in higher education with what I would describe as almost a conversion experience as an undergraduate. (laughs) I went off to college completely unprepared, undecided, undeclared, no idea what I wanted to study. And I fell into a, a number of general education courses like they all do and became really enamored of philosophy. So I signed up as a philosophy major, and I started going to classes that were very small, where it was impossible to hide, and where you had to come to class every day prepared. Um, in this particular program, we had to prepare a three- to five-page paper every single week, present it, endure the criticism of the fa- faculty member and our fellow students, But it was an excellent discipline because what philosophy teaches you to do is to reason through various arguments, express yourself concisely and precisely, and think hard about difficult subjects. There are a lot of difficult subjects in higher education and many routes to achieve some kind of capacity for expression. But philosophy was an outstanding one for me. So I decided that I wanted to pursue academia, and I enrolled at the Claremont Graduate University in a program of religious studies, a PhD. Um, Went all the way through the coursework, and then I started doing what a lot of people do. I did some freeway teaching. For about two years, I taught at community colleges and local private universities. And at the end of that period of time, I had a significant aha moment. Um, I discovered I don't like teaching. So here (laughs) I was, I had invested a small fortune, enormous amount of time in an apprenticeship to get into higher education. And I was stranded because the track I was on turned out not to be the one that I thought it would be. So I um, asked for help from the Claremont Colleges. And I was given the opportunity to go and interview the various administrators who worked at those colleges, a student dean, an academic officer, a business officer, um, university advancement, fundraising people. And I came to the conclusion rapidly that the path for me was on the operations side. So I entered the MBA program at the Claremont Graduate University, the Peter Drucker Center. And completed that while working full-time for the treasurer of the Claremont University Center. So I had this great apprenticeship in what it means to be a CBO. I was mentored by all of the then CBOs at the Claremont Colleges and came out of that experience with real focus and a real sense of how I wanted to contribute to higher education.
0: That is a fascinating story. It's always interesting to hear people's stories about how they got into higher ed, but from philosophy to teaching to an aha moment. I love it. Fantastic. So you've been in academia most of your career. However, you did have a brief hiatus and you served as CFO for the Los Angeles Philharmonic. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that for our listeners and what that experience meant to you. Sure. That was fascinating. Um, For 10 years, I was
1: the Chief Financial Officer at Occidental College in Los Angeles. And one of their trustees and alumni was the president of the music center in downtown Los Angeles. A lot of the doors that open for us in these careers are a result of personal connections. And this is a person who had watched my work at Occidental and tapped me on the shoulder one day and said, there's an opening at the Los Angeles Philharmonic Association. Maybe you would like to consider that. So um at that point, again, I've been 10 years at Occidental, and that's a good long period of time. At some point, I feel you've given as much as you can, and there's not much new that you can do. So I was interested in exploring it. He introduced me to Deborah Borda, who was the president then. She is now the president of the New York Philharmonic Society. Um, and i was selected and for two years i got to live in a well i was going to say completely different but it's a different world Um, the los angeles philharmonic association produces performances almost 365 days a year either at the hollywood bowl or at the walt disney concert hall one of the biggest differences in working for a Philharmonic Association as opposed to higher education is that the life of the organization, the mission of the organization is to present performances. And so the expectation is senior officers, whether you're a business officer or an advancement officer, are expected to participate in a good number of these events. So um, the season for the Los Angeles Philharmonic itself ran from October through May. And most Thursdays um, I was present for the concerts and to interact with trustees and donors and other people. And it's much more of an event concept, as you would imagine. So many of the same challenges existed as existed for higher education. We had to count for everything. We had to report on everything. We had to make the reports interesting. We had to staff board committees and then you have this whole other life in addition to that that was pretty much 9 to 5 the work and then you would put on a you know a tux and head off to Walt Disney Concert Hall to join the trustees and others for performances um if folks aren't familiar with the Los Angeles Philharmonic association it's commonly rated among the top 3 in the world as you know an outstanding orchestra it's currently being led by Gustavo Dudamel uh, one of the bright stars in classical music so, it was an extraordinary opportunity to exist in a rarefied atmosphere and do something different for a while but i 'll tell you one thing I'd learned about myself was that, as exciting as it was to be going to concerts on Thursdays and on weekends at the Hollywood Bowl and so on, um, my heart was really in higher education and After only two years, and primarily because I felt like I was not contributing in the area where I where things mattered most to me. I decided to resign and return to higher education. Um, The decision to go to Chapman University was interesting to a number of people who knew me at the time. I think they expected that I would return to a national liberal arts institution. Um, I'm sure the audience knows that Occidental is ranked in the top 25 nationally. And uh, before that, Claremont. So, Um, I actually was interested in evolving. I wanted to try something different. And Chapman was doing very interesting and unusual things. One of the reasons they recruited me at that time was because they were launching an independent, completely separate, separately accredited, um, non-traditional student-serving online and blended institution. Now, this is all in response to the perceived crisis in higher education. Um, the concerns about the sustainability of the business model, and the sense that the price tag for a traditional education was too high, pressure from Congress to have institutions innovate and do things to deliver um, high-quality education at a lower price point. So Chapman University gave birth to Brandman University, which is um, independent, has its own board, but is controlled to a certain extent by Chapman still. Chapman appoints its regents, and Chapman relates to it through um, cross-participation of trustees. I attend meetings, although I'm not a member of that board of regents, and it is a bold experiment, I will say. Now, that I found very attractive. I think that you know we are all concerned, as CBOs across the country, about the future of higher education in the United States. And to be given the opportunity to participate in um, a thoughtful, credible, expensive um, and significant experiment in delivering what higher education was being told was needed is something that I found very appealing, so that pulled me out of the Los Angeles Philharmonic Association after only two years of service there because I thought the nature of the experiment happening at Chapman was so significant. I didn't want to miss out on it.
0: I want to talk a little bit more about Brandman in a minute, but just reflecting on your time at the LA Philharmonic, was there anything that you learned there that you feel informs your work now?
1: Um, Absolutely. One of the, um, again, having listened to these podcasts (laughs) in the past, um, one of the questions people get the opportunity to speak to is, um, is there somebody who served as a mentor in your career who made a deep impact and what kind of impact did they give? Um, I want to speak about Deborah Borda. Um, She was president of the LA Phil, as I mentioned earlier, at the time that I was recruited to be there. And I learned a great deal from her. She is brilliant and um, extraordinarily energetic. She is passionate about the delivery of um, orchestral music in the United States. There are only 53 orchestras in the entire country, and most of them are losing money. Only two make money and one is L.A. Phil and the other is Boston. And Deborah Borda had a great deal to do with the success of the Los Angeles Philharmonic. What I learned from her and what I learned from being in the Philharmonic environment is that quality matters so much to sustaining support, attendance, and mission. I feel like um, higher education can benefit by taking the example of the the greatest orchestras in the world, and understanding exactly how they achieve that. In Deborah Porter's case, it had to do with the following factors. She herself was a practicing musician. She played viola and um, came up serving in orchestras. So her ability to relate to and recruit and work with the musical director to get excellent members of the orchestra, translated into the quality that everybody experienced when they attended Phil events. Um, She herself was instrumental in doing that. Now, here at Chapman, I want to say the same thing about another mentor of mine, who is Jim Doty, the president, long-serving president, now president emeritus, uh, retired two years ago. For 25 years, Jim led uh, Chapman University in very much the same way. That is to say, He himself started out as a member of the faculty here with an economics degree from the University of Chicago. He worked hard to establish an excellent teaching career and reputation. And he pursued his career by continuing to recruit outstanding members of the faculty to Chapman and saw that the core to the education institution being successful is the quality of the people who are making the mission happen. Deborah Borda, Jim Doty, very similar in both of these ways, even though <clears throat> they're both extraordinarily different kinds of organizations.
0: I love that. That's really, really great learnings. And, and you've already kind of scooped one of my questions, which is fantastic. So thank you for doing that. <laughs> yes, Let's sure. um, talk a little bit about your current role at Chapman. What would you say is most exciting about your job? You talked a little bit about Brandman University. I don't know if that's part of it or if, or if you would classify that as something else, but What's most exciting about the work you're doing today? Um,
1: I, would, I would say it's um, in part, the I don't, really, um, I don't really deliver any leadership for Bramman University. Again, it's completely independent. It has its own administration. Gary Brom is the chancellor, a good colleague of ours, Phil Doolittle, who has appeared on this podcast series previously. Phil is their current executive vice chancellor for finance and administration. They are well led, but um, from time to time. There are issues that pertain to both institutions where I do get involved, but for the most part, it's independently led and strongly led. Um, They recently announced to uh, to great fanfare that they've entered into agreements with um, uh, Walmart in order to provide access to their competency-based education platform with Walmart footing the bill for its employees. Um that's a very exciting development for both parties. And I think it goes to the heart of the pressure that we as an industry are under, again, to uh, try to alter using technology, the price point for a traditional degree. So Chapman is sort of both and. The university is both and. We are, on the one hand, delivering high quality traditional bricks and mortar, traditionally aged student um, programs. Um, we're a comprehensive in that we have a number of professional degree programs, an MBA, a JD. We also have recently expanded into um, health sciences, and I have been at the, with the campus the whole time of the expansion into health sciences, including the acquisition of the health science campus, which is an independent campus in Irvine, the renovation of it, the funding of all of that. That's been a very exciting aspect of, of what I've been doing here at Chapman. We made the commitment to do that for the reasons that again, generally higher education is under pressure. We took a hard look at data pertaining to Orange County, California, and we asked what is being what is currently underserved. So there was uh, no pharmacy program in Orange County, and so we launched a pharmacy school. We are offering physician assistance. All of these have been recently nationally accredited, and these are brand new programs. And then we brought our longstanding nationally accredited doctor of physical therapy program to the Irvine campus. So we have a health sciences center, and we're going to continue to expand health science programming there. Um, But still, Chapman is traditional in most respects. Um, Again, as I mentioned, it's a bricks and mortar based institution. We don't do a lot of technology platform um, education. We don't have a lot of blended courses. We don't offer online. Brandman, on the other hand, is doing all of that and uh, quite successfully. And my participation on their Board of Regents meetings keeps me informed of everything they're doing. And um, it's quite exciting. And it's also quite challenging. Um, from time to time, people contact Chapman, myself, uh, our current president, Daniel e. Strupa, Gary Brom, because they're inquiring into how this institution was launched. And of course, they're asking because they're facing the same pressures and the same examination of their own business model as we did. And I think everyone here at Chapman would agree that launching a new institution with a completely different mission for um, and style of delivery of education is expensive, takes a long time, it's extremely challenging. And I would say that at the core of those challenges is... Um, you know, while on the one hand, Congress is demanding of all of us in higher education that we be more innovative, the regulations, um, you know, the, the working with the Department of Education to try to do new things, extraordinarily difficult. There are major obstacles to innovation imposed by the government itself. So on the one hand, the political leaders are saying, move faster and innovate. And on the other hand, the administrative systems within the federal bureaucracy are, makes it really hard. <laughs> um, for a while, I served as the chair of the Western Association of Schools and Colleges. Um, you know, the seven regional accreditors for a long time were under scrutiny by Congress as being, um, oppositional to innovation. Whereas in almost every case, um, we were bound by the rules of the Department of Education. There's some really clear examples of this in recent memory. So for a while, Tom Harkin was chair of the Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions. And he conducted a series of investigations, particularly against or into online major for-profit educational institutions. Um, There's a whole background there, and I don't think this is the place to recite all of that. But at at the time that he was doing these things, I was the chair of one of the seven regional accreditors. And I actually met with his committee and with his staff. Um, And the main question they seemed to be asking the accreditors was, there are these bad players out there, and they're exploiting people who really are not prepared and ready to go to college, and they're using federal loans in order to make enormous profits, why can't accreditation more readily, more speedily um, limit their access to Title IV funding and basically stop the bad players? And I remember one particularly heated exchange with Harkin staff where they were saying basically, you know, regional accreditors do not have the authority or the ability to investigate what has to be investigated. It really would take a legal proceeding in order to get to that. So what good are you people? Is basically what they were asking, and the odd response that we were forced to give them was, "Well, we are in part required to enforce the rules that the Department of Education itself is stipulating in these, in, in regard to all of these issues." So, um, what I'm saying is that innovation is really hard. Um, it would be great if everyone would work together and cooperate so that it could take place and be, you know, and evolve more quickly. Um, technology platform education is not for everyone. I mean, do you remember in the days when MOOCs first came to town and people were saying the sky is falling and traditional bricks and mortar education is going to die and everybody's going to be taking MOOCs and, you know, you're all going to close and there's going to be consolidations and collapse and death <laughs> and all this, remember? Um, well, I was also chair of the commission when all that talk was going on. And uh, we actually invited the folks who started Coursera to come and talk to us a lot. Of course, being on the West Coast, we wanted to talk to the people in our region. And that wasn't their agenda at all. Their agenda was access. And, um, you know, no matter what type of um, technology platform you might elect, either one of the large for-profit providers or um, a MOOC or whatever, it's just not for everyone. And what we're learning is that as the origin of our industry itself reflects, um, there's a recent book by a Stanford um, education faculty member called A Perfect Mess, The History of the Development of Higher Education. And it's, it's not a new idea, but it's one that I think we all understand. And that is, it's the diversity of opportunities for education that makes the American system as strong as it is. So one size does not fit all, and what, is, what we're all trying to work out is how to provide high-quality education in a variety of formats at a variety of price points so that people who really want to focus on a career education can get it from a high-quality and credible institution at a reasonable price without massive debt. And people who are really focused on a more traditional educational environment who want to go off into graduate school and pursue careers that basically the gateway into those careers is that kind of education can also achieve it. Uh, It's not to say that all these problems that we're facing are suddenly going to disappear, but I was attracted here because I saw a very noble experiment going on, and I think it is succeeding.
0: You have such a fascinating perspective just where you're sitting within a traditional university, but also having, you know, one foot in, in the world of brand men and everything that's happening there. So what advice do you give to people who who contact you and say, how do we be more innovative? Maybe they're a traditional four-year institution. How do we be more innovative? What are the pieces that you can hand to them and say, You really need to look at this, or you need to look at this, or here's some pockets of innovation for you to kind of stay apprised of. Are there anything that you would suggest to our listeners that they kind of pay attention to or close attention to outside of the disaster that is uh, the governmental regulations that are that are um, hamstringing that whole process?
1: Yeah, I think um, I think people who are not currently uh, involved in a, a technology outreach education platform of one kind or another, whether it's blended or online, might uh, be well, very well served to become familiar with the competitive landscape among those who are currently involved. Um, one of the humbling lessons I personally learned uh, by sort of watching what the leadership of Bramman was doing was it is much harder to gain market share than you might imagine. And so you have to have a skill set. This may seem commonsensical on one level, but I I think maybe what I'm saying is more in a matter of emphasis than novel idea. Um, You really have to understand internet marketing. And um, there are people who are expert at it. And if you're going to make an investment and start moving in this way, put into your overall profile of how you're going to go about it a very significant uh, commitment to recruiting the very best internet marketing people and or consultants, because it matters um another thing I would say is that uh, and I think this is common sense goal but the systems matter um, you know there are quite a number of providers of sort of template educational uh, platforms for technology, traditional course development, online course development there are uh, competency platforms that you can acquire. Brandman looked at them all and decided that there was an opportunity to build something better. And so they created their own. That took a lot of time and it was costly. Now, um, people might say, well, you know, commonsensically, that makes sense. You know, you have to have a different kind of marketing and you have to get people who know how to do it. And you have to have people who are really expert in developing the technology. But if you really want to innovate, uh, the best people to talk to are Gary and Phil because they committed to the development of a competency-based platform that they think has achieved a level of delivery benefiting the student greater than what is elsewhere available. And furthermore, has been approved by the Department of Education. Now, let me assure you, that's <laughs> saying something. I mean, th- that really is a significant achievement. And it's beginning to gain traction. and you know, it has the interest of a couple of major employers, some of which have been announced um, in the higher education press. So what I would say is, you need to find the right expertise, you need to plan carefully and spend real time investing in it, and um, expect that it will take longer and cost more than you think. You know how when you renovate your kitchen, people (laughs) say, whatever estimate your contractor gives you, double it time-wise and expense-wise. Same thing. Basically, same advice.
0: Harold, anything else you'd like to share that I have not asked you today?
1: I wanted to mention two more mentors because I really want to acknowledge them. Um, I spoke about Deborah Borda and Jim Doty. The things that have helped me career-wise are being inspired by examples of people who, who manage to overcome obstacles and encourage the people around them to create an effective team to address opportunity. Uh, Jim Doty is one of the best I've ever seen or had the privilege of working for at that. Um, he could turn lemons into lemonade so easily. It was almost hard to, so fast and so easily, it was almost hard to see what he had done. And um, that undying positive, unflagging positive orientation toward there are solutions to any challenges and higher education matters and we're going to bring the best people together and we're we're going to get something f- fantastic done. What a great example he has been. Um, two more people I'd like to mention briefly. One is John Slaughter, who was the first president in Occidental that I served with while I was there. John was the past director of the NSF under both Presidents Carter and Reagan. Um, a, such an estimable character. And he was deeply influential on me and my career in terms of the example that he set with respect to uh the way that he cared about everybody involved in the enterprise. So a man who greatly respected others, and regardless of how stressful or pressing the circumstances were, he always conducted himself, comported himself with great respect for other people who were around, and that managed to convey a will to get through even tough times. And then only one more person I want to mention is Ted Mitchell, currently the president of ACE. Ted was the second president I served with at Occidental, one of the brightest people I've ever known. What I wanted to mention about him is the sense that higher education is, in fact, a public good, despite the difficulty we're having nationally with the perception of that. Ted is committed to that vision and has conducted himself through service. You, I'm sure, are aware that before going to ACE, Ted was the last uh, undersecretary for higher education under President Obama. Um, And it's that sense that everything that we are about is really a commitment to the public good that has deeply motivated me throughout the course of my career. So I want to acknowledge those people as well, if that's okay.
0: Well, thank you so much, Harold, for joining us on the podcast today and sharing just a few of your gems of wisdom with our listeners.
1: It's been a great uh, privilege for me and I thank you for considering me to do this.
0: You can find out more about Harold and today's episode by visiting the conferences and e-learning section, then click podcasts of nakubo.org. Make sure you subscribe to CBO Speaks and Apple Podcasts so that you'll get the latest episodes instantly. And on behalf of Harold and myself, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us for this episode of CBO Speaks. This episode of CBO Speaks is brought to you by Kaufman Hall. Learn about their strategic and financial consulting services and Axiom software for budgeting and planning by visiting kaufmanhallcom forward slash higher education.